Welcome to Beer and Ray Guns, the podcast where two kind of old guys crack a cold one and talk sci-fi, a little sci-fact, and try to answer that age-old question of our generation. Where are the frickin' flying cars? I'm Brent Huber. And I'm Paul Lagasse. So what'd you crack tonight? What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Tonight I have a Redland. Let's see. This is from Seven Locks Brewing in Rockville. It's a red lager by the name of Redland. And it has a very nice little caption on the back. It's, it's got a very nice description. The first sip brings you back. Smooth caramel notes crusting to meet gentle floral hops, creating a layered, balanced finish. You know, that, that's about right. It, it's nice and it's got a little caramel. It's very smooth. And I, I'm partial to red and amber ales, so I thought that would be something good to start with. Oh, yeah. How about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the reds, too. But t- tonight, it's it's the house brew, Dogfish 60. <laughs> it's, Excellent. It, it's, it's the default. I mean, the cooler's filled with it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like my reds. I yeah, like my reds. They're, they're good... Um, they're good, warm and cold. I mean, I have a th- I have a thing for like English ales, and um, a lot of times I'll drink those warm rather than put them in the fridge, just because I like that. I, I don't I, I don't I don't want the shock. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. Well, beer is to be drank slightly warm to begin with, from what everything I've read. I mean. I, I honestly, I think the taste changes as it warms up. I think it gets more subtle, complex. Mm-hmm. You know, cold is just, I don't know, it just, it's like drinking ice water. <laughs> and there are times you want that. After you just mowed the lawn in the middle of August, you're like, I really am not interested in the subtle floral notes. I want to I want to get cold and I want the pain to go away. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I say that every time I watch my, my kids mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice having a kid to do that. That's yeah. usually my job in this family. But we moved to somewhere where we don't have a lawn. So I'm finally, I think I'm finally through with that phase of my life. Oh, cool, cool, cool. <sighs> All right, so I have to ask this. It said bring you back. What's it bring mm-hmm. you back to? Because I, I think that might be this episode's theme. <laughs> Yeah, I can. I see that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Tonight we are we are t- going to be talking about an essay that appeared in. Wow, what is this? What issue of of the magazine is this? By wh- while we're stalling to yeah. look it up, I am a big fan of magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and I have over the years tried to collect a complete run of the magazine from issue one through the, which was 1949 through 1960. So I wanted to have, that's my favorite year of, of short, short and novel length written science fiction. So I uh, wanted to get a complete run of that for starters. And eventually over time, I might broaden out to uh, other magazines from that period. But uh, in this particular issue, which is, did you find it? Yes, I did. It is what is it? April nineteen fifty-seven. April nineteenth. Awesome. Yes, there is an essay by the esteemed grandmaster of science fiction, Isaac Asimov. Yes, called "The Byproduct of Science Fiction," 
And this was a, an article that uh, was uh, looks like it was originally published in Chemical and Engineering News and then reprinted in this issue of F&SF with some additional uh, commentary by Mr. Asimov, Dr. Asimov. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seemed like a really great place for us to start our discussion of science fiction, science fact, and answering that age-old question <laughs> about the flying cars. Yeah, because he indicates in his article, and I think we've, we've seen this by, you know, it's, it's 2021 now, how important science fiction is to the pursuit of science. And, and, and he raises some really interesting points, and he makes some very interesting points right at the beginning that I thought um, apply more today than they might have in 1957. It's really interesting because one of the things that I was expecting to see in this article I did not see, which was we've depending on who you know, depending on who your Facebook friends are, one of the things that <laughs> you've seen a lot in your Facebook feeds is a a portrait of Isaac Asimov with a quote about the power of ignorance and ending with the line some people I'm paraphrasing, but people often equate people seem to think that my opinion is equal to your facts or words to that effect. And I really thought that's, I, I was expecting reading this article to find out that this is where that came from, but surprisingly it didn't. So this is, it's obviously a recurring theme for him, but the, the uh, opening sentence begins on June 25th, 1956. I watched producers showcase on television and witnessed in striking form the conflict between the need for education and the cult of ignorance. Yes. Now, and that's I, a lead sentence. No doubt. And I think it was kind of, kind of telling that he capitalized cult and ignorance. <laughs> yes. And, and that was, you know, that was kind of where I was going to start because that was the one that jumped right out. I was like, Oh my God, um, this could be as um, relevant today as it was in, in, in 1950, well, 1956, I think is when yeah. he actually wrote it. No internet. No, no Facebook, no Facebook, no social media. I mean, that was, you know, at the, uh, wherever you happen to be around friends and, and, and that was it. But I think it was interesting how he, he felt motivated you know, because he talks, he went, he goes on to talk about the commercial, which led into the the, the television program that he was going to watch, and about how this um, rocket company, a missile company in Florida, didn't name it explicitly, needed mm -hmm. engineers, and he felt like, oh my gosh, I I want to jump off the couch and just fly to Florida right now. But then he talks about the fact that this missile engineering company, whatever it might have been paid for sponsorship of a program that just had one metaphor after another of ignorance and our inability to, to see educated people as anything more than something bad. It's, it's, it's kind of what he alluded to. Yeah. And he, he, the, the story that he recapped was basically a guy and a girl meet in a bar and he um, isn't terribly attracted to her because she's wearing glasses. 
and she's turns out she's a librarian. And in 1956, if you want to be guaranteed to be unmarried as a woman for the rest of your life, you're going to do two things. You're going to be a librarian and you're going to wear glasses. And speaking as someone who married a librarian who wears glasses, <laughs> I'm really happy to say that that stereotype, you know, hopefully by now is gone. But, you know, he, he makes a really interesting point that it's almost like a sh the, the glasses become a shorthand for the unattractiveness of intellect, that a woman who's wearing glasses is automatically going to be ugly, and men are not going to find them interesting or appealing or desirable in any way. And here's, here's a missile company that, that, like you said, is trying to recruit educated, smart people, and it's sponsoring a program that, that caters to the, the silliest stereotypes imaginable. And the, the thing that I thought was really interesting, Isaac Asimov, being the guy he is, can spin a tale. You know, he's writing this article, and it goes on for pages, and nicely lyrical prose, and he, he's telling you the story in his good, good on time, and it's almost like, you know, you're kicking back drinking with him. And then he gets to the part where he's finished describing the plot, and he says, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yes. <laughs> Dichotomy, like, stereotypes, cliches, and all. I really enjoyed it. Okay. And, and that threw me. <laughs> yeah. He, he, well, I, I think it's part of, he saw the deeper meanings that were trailing through it and meanings and metaphors that have been repeated over and over and over again. Because somewhere in here, he talks about the bad boy and the, the, the bad kids and the, 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 the teacher's pet and how this 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 sense of being educated or being as as he, I think as he put it intellectual is not worth your time. Nothing really good will come from it. And right. yeah, and and it seems to be a reoccurring theme. And I think we have seen that theme. Uh, you know, heck, I obviously I I was not alive in fifty seven few years nor later. was i yeah I, I, I'll, I'll just throw that out there in case anyone listening was wondering <laughs> that that silence was rather telling it was like what about you yeah yeah i i came along later but at the same time you know 50 plus years of of living here i have seen this theme i i've seen it repeat itself over and over and over again and not to get into things too deeply with where we are culturally and, and socially here, here in America, but I've seen it, I wouldn't say weaponized, but I've seen it used to manipulate a great deal of people and stoke fires that perhaps should not have been stoked. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's, there's a, um, there's a, there's a more, aggressive pride in not knowing that people seem to use as a counterbalance for people who they think look down on them because they're educated. There is an inferiority complex that goes with not being, you know, having a degree or whatever. And so there's this, this effort to counterbalance it with an assertive pride in the lack of knowledge. And it's, it's really interesting because at the same time that this is going on, you know, 1956, where you've got these TV shows that are 
extolling these cliches, you've also you're also having the beginnings, the earliest days of television news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chet Huntley is on and pretty soon, you know, he's going to team up with David Brinkley and then Walter Cronkite's going to come on the scene. And you have these people who have knowledge and they, they're erudite and they have worldly knowledge from their travels as, as reporters during, you know, World War II. And so they're bringing back this, this, um, worldly knowledge but yet they are able to be trusted mm-hmm. people eventually come to trust them and look at them as authority figures but you know Walter Cronkite isn't a guy who has a lot of degrees he's trusted because he's not condescending for one thing i mean i on the one hand you have this distrust of authority that comes across as snobbish and then on the other hand you have these people who are trusted for their knowledge who are not feared for, for that. It's really interesting how you have this dichotomy at that time and it only gets bigger over time. And then something, then something happens and it, and it seems to go away. Um, there was this, this whole, uh, this, this feeling of, uh, cause I remember, I remember watching Walter Cronkite as a kid. I remember watching him with my grandfather, you know, (laughs) and you know, that's the way it was. And right. You know, he there was an air. There was uh, 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 this is the news. This is the fact. This is the truth. Uh, we're not going to choose any sides here. We're going to present to you what we know, and allow you to make decisions. And somewhere right. along the way, I, I think we, the viewers, got taken out of the equation to some extent. And and I worry of about where something like this is going, because it just it, it seems like a, a a part of who we are has just kind of said, uh, I'm just going to give up, whatever, uh, whatever, you know. And and I think that Asimov was starting to see some of that develop because he, he says early on in the article that you know he talks about the what the play was about. And about the character in the play who had gone into the bar and and to prove his worthiness to the librarian, he he recited you know the books of the minor prophets of the Bible, right? And you know he said that you know as 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 he was he explained that when the when when the character was younger, his dad would would pay him to 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 memorize these, and then he says here he rattles them off, explaining that when he was younger, he could recite them much more quickly. Thus, the audience is presented with an example of what book learning is, and it's clear to them that this sort of thing is useless and ridiculous, and that Barry, the character, is wise to eschew books and confine himself to bars. Yeah. And, and, and it's a message that kind of gets repeated, and, 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 and I think that has, that, that, that has a thread into where we are today and a thread into, you know, the, the diminishing trust and appeal of, you know, somebody like Walter Cronkite. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's really interesting because we're both old enough that we remember a time before science fiction was mainstream. Mm-hmm. 
And for a show like The Twilight Zone or more, you know, more influentially Star Trek to get on the air was was not a hot property. This is not something that people thought this is going to bring a really great demographic to our network. And we were both of an age that I don't know about you, but I sure got downright bullied in school for being an out, you know, out science fiction fan. I mean, it was, it was a mark on my forehead and it caused me a lot of trouble for all those reasons. I mean, why aren't I doing something really useful like learning how to fix a car or learning foot, you know, playing football or something. And it's, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but I, it, it seemed like it tied in with what you were saying. May, well, I, I, I think I, will, I better I have some more to drink here. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, there we go. So I, let me let me throw this because this is a story that that my mom told me a, a, a while back. Um, so I am part of the Star Trek generation. I was born the very day Star Trek premiered, so y'all can do the math on that. And I still think that is the most awesome. I know. It's, it's, so <laughs> talk about being born with, oh, under a star. Under a star, yes, yes. The very first episode premiered the night I was born. So my mom had always been a science fiction fan. She, she just it, it, it just it clicked for her in the in the in the in, the, in her early childhood, the forties and the fifties. So she used to she told me the story where where she would tell tell friends in, um, of hers in in high school that someday we were going to be landing on the moon. Someday we were somebody was going from the Earth was going to walk on the moon, and we are going to to go to other planets. and And she had this this kind of this vision. They all thought she was nuts, just absolutely crazy. And she t- she told me years later she was at a high school reunion, and one of the friends that had thought that she was absolutely crazy and and told her as such, apologized to her. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like the very definition of wow science fiction can become science fact if we push hard enough we look far enough and we become educated enough to make these things happen it's when we give up and we just oh whatever that yes we don't get anywhere and as far as pushing that boundary I got to say, Star Trek is the engine that has pushed a lot of people, a lot, into the fields of science, into the books, into that, hey, can we do this? Hey, let's do that. I mean, 1966, 67, they had little pads in their hand that they were writing on with pens. It was ink. Um, you, assuming it was ink, then we don't know for sure. Yeah, but. Well, then you assumed that it was ink. Now you're like, oh no, that was definitely an iPad in a very thick case to handle space. <laughs> right. It was yeah, shockproof. Yeah, and they had disc. They had discs. That yes, they, they, they did. put in, and they could talk to the computer. Now we're not. They, quite, could, they were reading on the screen. Yeah, it's we're like an the, e-reader. Yeah, we're not quite to the point where, you know. Siri can handle the things that 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 we ask, or the other one that I'm not going to say her name because she's sitting on my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's 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 kind of foreshadowing, and and gave gave people something to say. Oh my gosh, let's 
see if we can make this happen. Because I remember the story yeah. about iTunes became iTunes as a result of somebody who wanted to Apple bought the bought the software from from this developer who wanted to create an L car system similar to what was in Next Generation. I didn't know that. That's how that's how the database and the library that's at its core, that's at its birth. Because wow. you know this guy wants he wanted to he wanted L cars. He wanted to be able to say, "Hey, play me this." And it who doesn't want that? Now we have it. <laughs> right. And we take it for granted. Yeah. And that's the other problem. <laughs> well, that's true too. Yeah. You know, and and I, I and I think Asimov gets to that point though in in his piece about the 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 pureness of science fiction and how to you can't take it from a wholly technical point of view that 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 science fiction without literary exploration is just a tech manual and nobody wants to be inspired by a tech manual. Right. You know, he had a, he had a really neat line in here that I, I have to find it, but when he gave his, when he, when he had article first appeared in the, in the chemistry magazine, one of the, one of the letters he got in response to it basically said that, um, you know, we, we basically, science fiction is just, it's too lazy. It's just, it's sugar, it's just sugar coated science yeah. and it's, it's just, you know, rotting the minds of our kids. And his, I love his response was he wants a magazine that is popular science a month ahead of time, maybe two months and one that is written in the same style, except that the articles are broken up into alternate speeches made by two learned professors and it's like, yeah, I, there are there are those science fiction writers who, you know, as as he said, you know, stories with inadequate literary values. I, I have a feeling he had a couple people in mind when he said that. <laughs> you know, not that I'm going to name names, Arthur C. Clarke, but you know, he. I think that's one of the things that Star Trek, especially, really hit really well was this balance of hard science or at least plausible science. And that's something else that Asimov talks about is, you know, the science doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be enough to like nudge the reader along to maybe if they're so curious, it's like, oh, that doesn't sound right. I better go look it up in the book and find out if that is right. And then all of a sudden you've sneakily taught someone some science. But you know, you, I, I, I will tell you, there are things in science that you couldn't write about that are out there in the universe that astronomers go, uh, how's that happening? Because I was watching sure. um, something on Discovery last night. And it was funny that it, it coincided with, with reading this. They were talking about uh, a planetary system that was discovered that has a gaseous giant very, very close to within 3 million miles, I think it was, of the, the system's star. And the planet is so hot and it's it's tidally locked, so like the moon. So it only one side faces the the star, and the other side is in always in total darkness. Okay. Uh, the planet is so hot that lead is vaporized, and there's <laughs> lead clouds, and all of oh this happens the, the 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 way that things are working on this planet is that winds are streaking across this planet at at supersonic speeds. 
So it forces this vaporized lead to move into the cold zone where it, like water, condenses and rains molten lead. And they're like, how? You know, the one guy said, if I had read this in the sci-fi book, I would have said, nah, that can't happen. And right. here, here we have data that's saying, yeah, it's happening. So <laughs> the literary kind of expanse on science within certain boundaries, you might actually hit something that's out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Science fiction opens the neural pathways to allow you to even begin to, to have room in your head to imagine what supersonic lead clouds look like, <laughs> you know, otherwise you just, you, you would just reject it out of hand and go, that's just not possible. Oh my God. Could you imagine that? So what's the temperature today? Well, it's, it's, it, we're on the, we're on the cool side. So it, it's going to be a, um, about 2080 degrees Fahrenheit with a potential of, of rain. Uh, watch out for that, uh, flash flood warning from molten lead flowing through town. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just did a weather report, you know. Oh gosh. Uh, but it, but it, it's it's just it, you know going back to the to the theme and and, and back to to all of this, it, it drives us. It it drives me. Um, you know, I, I I like playing with the toys that I have because it's like you know, being Scotty or something on the enterprise. I got all these buttons to press and all these things to do. And yes, you know, yes. It, it's, it's cool. I, I, I have my iPhone, which is not that far from a tricorder at this point. Oh yeah. Especially with the little LIDAR thing in it. It's really cool. Yes. Another episode. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it, it, I, I've seen it. And you've seen it, and, and we've seen it. We've seen the birth of it, and we see it start to mature. And I hope it grows into a fantastically strong and positive adult. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I I'm glad to have been able to see it at the stage that I did, and I'm very hopeful for what is yet to come. And I know that a lot of it is stuff that I'm not going to even necessarily be able to understand. And that doesn't, and, and maybe this is, this is bringing it back to the whole ignorance thing, but knowing that there's things coming along that I'm not going to get or understand, or that might even scare me, like, you know, mm -hmm. neural implants <laughs> or, um, you know, artificial limbs or, you know, all these, all the amazing cutting edge science that is being done in labs right now. I mean, tissue engineering, you know, years ago, I I worked with an organization that was involved in, you know, the, the early stages of growing tissues in Petri dishes. You know, and that's just mind-boggling. And there are huge moral and ethical debates that need mm -hmm. to be had to make sure that these things are placed within society without getting out of control. But the thought of all of the all of that happening doesn't scare me. It doesn't, in, it, it, it enthuses me. It excites me. I want to be blown away. I want to not understand things because then that means there's something more I get to learn. Right. Right. And that's, you know, ignorance, the difference between ig ignorance is only bad when it's, when you're just, when you don't want to change, 
when you're afraid of it or you're intimidated to the point where, or you're whatever reason, you don't want to learn. You don't want to discover and grow. And I think that's a lot of what he was talking about here is, you know, you science fiction is a conduit to let you open up your brain and welcome new ideas. Mm -hmm. It gives you a, vo a mental vocabulary and it also takes away the excuses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember hearing a quote once and it, and it applied to businesses and corporations is that the, the expression, well, that's the way we always done it is the most damaging thing that any business or corporation or, or entity organization can say because it, puts the puts the, the the wall up that prevents you from moving out and stepping exactly. and stepping out you don't have to step out on the edge and and jump you can walk your way out there and build a little bit more and make it safe and build a little bit more but that whole process of moving forward that's the progress that's what makes things that that's what makes things happen. It's it's what makes things worth living and looking at. Just sitting yeah. in your shell, going, "Oh, we've always done it this way," you know. My my great 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 grandpappy did it this way, and it worked for them. So why change it? Right, right. And and I think that's it's so limiting. It's it's locked you into that moment in time, and you're never going to be able to look outward and say. Well, gosh, if we, you know, we, we just did it a little bit different this way. Oh, wait, look what's happening. We do it a little bit different this way. Oh, oh, it, it starts this whole process. This whole process. You just, you got to, <laughs> Nike was right. You got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I really do. The the science fiction that inspires me the most is the is the is the science fiction where people take a chance. Mm -hmm. They are put in a situation where they have to go outside of some some aspect. I mean, you know, you've got the seven classic plots, you know, man versus nature, blah blah blah. But you know, man or human people versus the unknown. Mm -hmm is that's where that's where science fiction and speculative fiction live mm -hmm. and whether you're whether the unknown excites you or in or makes you afraid is going to determine I mean, it's going to determine your future because oh, it's determining the future absolutely absolutely cuz the future according to doc brown in um oh my gosh I just saw a flash of lightning out of the corner of my eye and totally. Oh, I, <laughs> it's rolling in. We've got seconds left, ladies and gentlemen. We're beating the clock. So, so here's the thing. I'm getting ready to say something about back to the future. Oh, God. <laughs> and there's a flash of lightning I catch out of the corner of my eye. And I'm like, I wonder if that was 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> gigawatts. <right? laughs> Yeah, but you know, Back to the Future. And, you know, when it when it all when it's all said and done, the series ends. He's holding the blank piece of paper, and you know, he says, "Your your future's not written," and and, and nobody's is. So don't stay in the past. Move forward. Yeah, and have a cold so, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the future is much more exciting and a lot less intimidating if you have a really good brew. In your hand. 
<laughs> no doubt. All right. I think that is good for this episode. And I have no idea where we're going on the next one. But it'll be no, a, we'll f- it'll be a fun trip. <laughs> it'll be a f- that's right. And everyone, you're welcome along the ride with us as we figure it out ourselves. Yeah. And eventually we will get to the air car question. <laughs> Not too soon though. No, no. We don't want to we don't want to peak too early. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. That's good. Thanks for Rolling. listening. Hey, thanks everyone. We'll catch you next time. All right, I'm um, letting it record. Dang, man. Is it work okay? That, wor- that rocked. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to stop the recording. Oh.